It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan, and we're trying something a little new this week, which I'm very excited about. I'm here with Blythe Terrell, our science editor, our new science editor here at 538, because today we're trying um, something new. We're calling it Sparks, and this is our very first episode. So, hey, Blythe, um, welcome, and congrats on this new thing. Hey, Jody. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it, and happy to be here. Yeah, so Sparks is our new series of conversations that we're having every month with the 538 science team. And what we're going to do is we're going to take over the mic here at What's the Point to discuss the big ideas behind interesting science writing. So we're kind of, it's hooked to writing Mm -hmm. um, each month, but it's not really like a book club or a magazine article club or something. But it is our science team, which is four people, got together and um, basically read something and talk about the big ideas that, that, that come out of it, right? Yeah, yeah. We're hoping to sort of take these readings and put them in the bigger context of what's happening in science and other conversations that are happening in science. And, um, you know, it's going to be an exploration of a variety of topics. So it's going to change a lot from month to month. But we're really excited about it. We're going to have two parts to the show each time. So the first part is the science writers and I are going to discuss the text today. And then in the next edition, we'll have an additional conversation with the author about the text that we discussed. So people should be sure to update their feed tomorrow to catch part two, which is the author interview. But um, anything else we need to know? Or should we just take a listen to this conversation? Yeah, please take a listen. Give us some feedback. And we're excited about it and hope you are, too. All right. Let's take a listen. I'm excited to welcome you to the very first episode of Sparks, a new series of conversations with the 538 science team, where we discuss the big ideas behind fascinating science writing. I'm Blythe Terrell, science editor here at 538, and I'm hanging out with lead science writer Christy Ashwanden. Hi, Christy. Hi, Blythe. Public health, food, and cultural writer Anna Maria Berry-Jester. Hey, Anna. Hey, Blythe. Hey, Christy. And senior science writer Maggie Kurth-Baker. Hi, Maggie. Hello, everyone. So one thing that's important to us at 538 is evidence and knowledge and how one becomes the other, what happens when evidence contradicts things that we think we know, and all sorts of questions like that. So what we're going to do today is talk about a book that addresses some of these questions, and then we're going to pull out a little bit and talk about uh, those big questions themselves. Today we're talking about Galileo's Middle Finger, a book by historian and bioethicist Alice Dreger. And then after we talk through it, we're going to bring Dreger herself in for a later podcast as well. So Maggie, can you give us the highlight reel from the book? Yeah. So what this book, I guess, is kind of about is people, scientists, I think usually for most of these stories that she tells, who have a new idea and who are willing to just go down to the mat for it. And she tells the stories of several fights about scientific evidence, um, all of them sort of centered around this showdown between data and fluffier things like politics, feelings, activism. You know, she models these heroes. Right. And not fluffier, like less important, but fluffier is in like more fluid and more difficult right. to define. Right. Well, but also like she kind of frames it as less important too. Oh, so okay. like I like at least from my perspective. So I, I like I kind of think of it as being about, you know, I guess Spock versus Kirk kind <laughs> of arguments sure. about like emotion versus evidence and how those things bump up against each other. And she I, like, I like that analogy a lot, Maggie. I, oh, yeah. I think that the, the, you know, the Spock thing, because she definitely comes down very hard on evidence. And uh, we can maybe talk about this later, but it, sometimes it feels like she's so hard on the evidence that she can't sort of see the social stuff around it. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Which is what made me start thinking about that as, as an analogy. And also just kind of that, like, Sort of like Blythe said, you know, she doesn't totally dismiss the human side, but it's definitely lesser. 
And there's some good reasons for that and some reasons that, you know, I think are less good. But um, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about this is she's also modeling the heroes of these stories after Galileo, you know, people who are really good at science, but who are bad at, I guess, doing the people thing. And right. who they're suffer not, not there to make friends. Right. Yeah, exactly. And who suffer for it at the hands of powerful institutions. Right. But it's not just I mean, I wouldn't say it's just the powerful institutions. Like, so there's this really interesting dynamic where you have these. I mean, each of these stories is sort of about a scientist who's going against either conventional wisdom, a group of activists, um, you know, people who can't uh, necessarily fend for themselves because there's several stories about fetuses and infants here. Um, but like there's they, they're all these really complicated sort of he said she said stories where there's a lot of nuance to it and at the end of the day she thinks that there's one group that sort of is pushing for whatever the kind of maybe conventional wisdom was and then you know the another group usually scientists who are trying to sort of push forward knowledge uh and being sort of thrown under the bus as a result because they're pushing against you know whatever whatever other power the common narrative yeah or yeah. But and I, and, yeah oh no and to yeah, your well, point kinda, life like it, it where i know i know, I know what, what you meant by fluffy maggie but it's sort of like it's not just fluffy because it's a lot of times people's identities and like really wrapped up in their sense of self right. in the world which is really yeah. you know incredibly important so right when i to clarify when i said fluffy i sort of meant that in a sarcastic way based on kind of how i felt at times she was portraying that more Kirkish side of the debate. Right, right. And we, we've sort of latched onto the fluffy things. <laughs> like, what are you trying to say? I'm not dismissing humans. I like right. I'm very into humans. Right, because, yeah, the, right. Sort of, I myself am a human. <laughs> so I, I thought about the Galileo's middle finger in kind of three parts. Um, in the first part, you have Dreger, who is talking about her work as a historian and as an activist with people who are born with ambiguous genitalia, which is a condition that is known as intersex. And then you have kind of the second part where she talks about where she gets involved in the transgender movement and some very difficult controversies between a scientist and the people who are um, sort of advocating on behalf of the rights of transgender people. And then you have an additional part where she talks about a bunch of other people and scientists, which Maggie mentioned, you know, where she she goes through and kind of explores other controversies where activists and other people out in the world like bump up against these scientists in some cases, like ostracizing them, et cetera. So it's this really interesting look at um, the intersection of activism and social justice and science and how it can get very complicated no matter what side of it you're on. And Dreger herself is on many sides of it at different times. So over and over again in this book, Dreger establishes herself as this champion of science, the champion of empiricism and evidence. And um, it you know, leads into trouble sometimes because we do have this, these questions of identities and questions of people. Christy, how did Dreger's initial work with intersex sort of how does that tie into the evidence question sure so first i should just say the term intersex is to dis- use to describe people who don't fit neatly into these bins that we like to make of male and female and there's about one in 1500 to one in 2000 people that are born with atypical genitalia so these are intersex people but there can also be people who are born with xy chromosomes so they're genetically male but their bodies don't respond to testosterone and so they develop Uh, female anatomy. Um, So basically, these are intersex people are people who don't fit into these 
neat bins that we like to think of gender in. And so Dreger started studying this. And what she found was, well, first of all, this is a very old, like, this is not a new condition. This is right. like a normal a lot of history, right? This is normal human variation. And what's interesting is that the way that intersex people have been treated um, over the centuries, you know, over sort of human history has changed a lot. You know, there were times when it was just seemed normal and people weren't ostracized or anything. Um, but sort of in more recent times, this has been something. Um, and really, I think, at, at the core, there's this this idea in the book of shame and shame sort of um, pushing people to make bad decisions. And so what do you mean by you? So explain that a little bit. Shame pushing people to make bad decisions. Yeah. So basically what was happening is, you know, a couple would would have a, a baby born, um, you know, with intersex, um, you know, atypical genitalia, they would sort of freak out and panic or the doctors are panic because it's sort of like, oh, my God, this is so shameful. It's terrible. You don't want your baby to be abnormal or to not have, you know, normal, what we think of as normal genitalia, right. etc. And yeah. so they would just sort of pick a gender and do surgery to sort of make uh, the genitals conform to that gender, like whatever seemed easiest. And so and in some cases, the person themselves would not even be told. I is interesting. The person there, who's born intersex. Right. Like okay. Dreger has this story where, you know, she's doing this this research. This is sort of the beginning of her academic career, as I understand it. And I guess she'd been talking to one of her parents. And it turned out that she had actually grown up with someone who was intersex. And so her, mm-hmm. her I think it was her mother was saying, oh, yeah, so-and-so has this. And Dreger wanted to go talk to that person. And her mother said, oh, but they don't know. Like the person had never <laughs> been told. So that's you strange, know, too. Like also the adults all know. And then right. Dreger knows. And then this person still doesn't know, which is a very that speaks very much to the shame question that well there, you're raising there's here. a really famous story that is not exactly intersex but that um there was a boy in canada who had a uh i guess when he was being circumcised like they had a mistake in the circumcision and ended up taking far too much of the penis off and they tried to kind of test out some of these theories about how they treat the intersex kids at birth by basically taking off his entire external genitalia and giving him female external genitalia and raising him as a girl. And it's this really famous case Mm -hmm. where it just damaged him mentally his entire life. Like no one told him until he was like an adult that this had happened. And then he tried to sort of transition back to being male and ended up, I believe, killing himself. And it's oh, wow. it's really tied up with a lot of the same kinds of things that happened to intersex kids for years and still do in some cases. Yeah. And I think that I, the big idea here that Dreger's saying is that, you know, we shouldn't just make these decisions or whatever. And she, she wasn't just saying so she ended up deciding, you know, her her stand became that doctors shouldn't get to decide this, that it's the intersex person person who, you know, should have the authority and the right to decide what they want to do. But also, you know, this wasn't just like an opinion based on, you know, her own social values, but that the the scientific evidence that we had was showing that making these decisions, you know, by having doctors and parents make these decisions on, you know, a person who's too young to make the decision themselves was actually harmful and that there was good evidence to show this. And so, you know, she's her, her crusade here became like, look, the evidence shows that practice that's being done right now is harmful and so we need to stop although it kind of starts Mm -hmm. out with like there's actually a lack of evidence that this is helpful and then there's anecdotal evidence that this is harmful 
Right. Which is kind you of mean doing the surgery? Exactly. Yeah, the normalization, quote unquote. Right. Yeah. For so long, they'd sort of assumed that this normalizing was so important to the development of the child. But then what they're finding is that there are these this anecdotal evidence from some in, intersex groups that this was actually really harmful and damaging. And so they tried to sort of you know, so she approached all these doctors thinking, okay, I'm going to get them to talk about this and we can have a real conversation and figure out where the truth is. Um, and mm -hmm. instead she found mm -hmm. that there was a ton of resistance, which was interesting to me because that seems like that resistance was what directly resulted in her pivoting to becoming an activist. Right. Yeah. And I think another sort of unifying thing here is that you have a situation where evidence of harms was being overlooked by the people, you know, the doctors in this case, who are producing the harm. There is another um, story about this later in the book about a procedure or a drug being given to pregnant women who could potentially be giving birth to an intersex uh, baby, although it seems pretty clear that most of them won't. Um, anyway, but but there's evidence that this could be harmful. But the, the doctor who was giving this drug really believed that it was it was, you know, helping. Right. She and doesn't so, think she's causing harm. Right. And so but or this, this is like many a, doctors don't. Yeah, this is a big point. I think that Dreger is trying to make is just that, you know, you have people with good intentions that are blind to their blind spots. And so mm -hmm. strong prior beliefs can make you resistant or even blind to, to evidence that's right there before you and sort of the importance of like stopping and saying, okay, what is the evidence and, and question well, there's also it. a little bit of a question everything <laughs> thread throughout the book, right? right. Because <laughs> you, like, like yeah. you're saying, I mean, they're in the medical community, there's not all always the checks and balances that you might think are there and that it's not like the evidence-based medicine is sort of an is actually a newer <laughs> newer concept right it wasn't always like that the, the right. keepers of the evidence historically have been physicians the fact yeah. the fact that we have to say evidence-based medicine right. tells you <laughs> a great deal about right. what you need to know about medicine you know <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's right Right. right. So it seemed like uh, so this intersex part of it, which is extremely formative for Dreger as a scientist, as a researcher, as an activist, is a part that I think we all kind of agreed made a lot of sense to us. We said, OK, you know, she researched this. She worked with the activists. She found the evidence she needed. Then she went to the physicians and said, this is not the right way to handle this. Like, let's talk about how you can handle this in a way that is um, better for the people in terms of health outcomes and also better in terms of a justice perspective. You know, you're allowing people to make those decisions for themselves rather than having an outsider make a decision that is going to affect someone's body for the rest of his or her life. Or I, not, I shouldn't even use those pronouns. Probably that's not, that is very, that is very like normative of me to do. Um, but I think what, one thing that, um, that really struck us all was the, the next controversy. So, so in that, in the first part of the book, you have a group that's been sort of historically uh, powerless, right? And the medical establishment has been harming them. So now we, the next section is really interesting because it's looking, it sort of flips that a little bit. So, okay, you have this psychologist who's a professor at, the, at Northwestern. He writes a book that's for a general audience about transgender women uh, based on some, uh, you know, a body of research and body of literature that is definitely a going theory, but is still sort of controversial even within the scientific community, which says, so basically for a long time, um, there's been this notion that trans women are women trapped in a man's body. But in Bailey's book, he describes this other body of research that says, actually, there can be multiple kinds of trans women. Um, and that's that's Michael Bailey? Yeah, Michael Bailey, a psychologist. Um, right. Mm -hmm. So he basically says that, that there can be, well, he's it's not his theory. It's somebody else's theory. Right. But he right. writes the this theory, book that yeah. says that so trans people can be trans for other reasons, including that it can be that they're sexually aroused by the idea of being a woman. Um, and so he writes this book. And what's 
it really upset a lot of transgender activists. And among other things, what's interesting is that he has a woman in the book that he's describing as being this being a type of person who's aroused by the idea of being a woman. But that person who the the in the book doesn't doesn't agree with his uh, characterization. So what Anna, what is the what is the the main opposition say what do you know so their thought on transgender is that it's more about identity and that it is not about something sexual it's not about a right right to be clear i think that everyone i think that everyone has a slightly more nuanced version <laughs> this is a really mm-hmm. incredibly complicated section and so you know we're gonna we're gonna mangle this when we talk about it because it's impossible <laughs> to talk about it accurately it's really hard but, it's a tricky it's a tricky but subject. it is sort of if you were going to try and simplify it it's based around this idea that for a long time we've we've we diagnose people who are trans like it's a diagnosable considered disorder which is very controversial in itself right but that that it's a a woman trapped in a man's body and again the book is only dealing with trans women not trans men so we're that's why we're <laughs> that's why I keep saying mm-hmm. women uh, and it's and it's not dealing body. at all with like people who are not like people on a more gender queer spectrum that doesn't fall right. purely male or purely female right so yeah that's right it's a super it's very binary the way it's described yeah. in the book which is in itself complicated but um, but so anyway, so Bailey describes this, you know, this where there are certain trans women who are actually trans in the sense that they are sexually aroused by the idea of being a woman. And this is was extremely upsetting to a lot of activists, but also is very complicated because, as I said, like we treat trans as a disorder and to have it diagnosed, it has to fall within some sort of very parallel lines that this this challenges. And those, and then those diagnoses are related to what outcomes, like whether or not you can get surgery. Exactly, like whether or not you're okay. able to get surgery, how you can exist in this world within the medical community. It's very complicated. And to me, one thing that's really interesting is that I think that Bailey and Dreger is also arguing this. So, so Bailey gets into a lot of trouble. He had, I mean, people were making threats against him, et and cetera. And his family, yeah, yeah, and his family. Like it got, right. it got really ugly. And Dreger sort of comes down on his side and and you know to his defense. But but Dreger and Bailey are both sort of saying like, look, we think it's okay. Like we are very much for transgender rights. Um, we think it's okay. Like we think that transgender people should be able to have sexuality and have desires, whatever desires they want, you know, that aren't harmful to anyone else, et cetera. But, but you know, so they, they really see this as being sort of um, an enlightened view and something that is <laughs> mm-hmm. helpful to the transgender people. And so some of the evidence, um, you know, that they use to come to this conclusion comes from the transgender people themselves. And so from case studies and things. And so in the book, Dreger describes, so there's one individual in particular who says, no, I don't agree with this. I am I'm not, I don't fall under this categorization that Bailey's making here about the sexual desire, et cetera. Um, but then Dreger and Bailey are saying, but wait, you know, we're basing this on things that you have said previously. Right, you, like you meet and, the definition of this if there were a definition mm-hmm. of this. Yeah. And so that's where I think it gets into the the stuff where it's like, okay, so we're, this isn't really, this This is not a dispute about the evidence. It is, it's a dispute about how to interpret it and like what it means and how we're going to present it out in the world. And I think that's where sort of the rubber really meets the road here. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it, so like, I, I'm glad you brought that up where they're, where she and Bailey are sort of trying to say like, oh, we totally agree with trans rights. We agree that you should be trans. It's super, it's super fine for you to be yourself, but that this is what maybe yourself means. And I, 
I thought it was kind of disingenuous of them to then not get why people were angry about that. Because you have this whole history of the way that the medical establishment has portrayed the trans community as like a perversion, as a, you know, something gross and sexual and dirty and wrong. And the fact that they didn't ever seem to, in the text, grapple with the fact that that can come across as saying, oh, no, you're totally a pervert, but we're fine with that. Right. And and like yeah. and not That's understand like why people would be pissed off about that. And right. like obviously people shouldn't be targeting his family with threats of violence, but like wouldn't you be furious? Right. I think there <laughs> are I right. I think there's there it makes a lot of sense to have sympathy for people. Also people who are who are fighting for their their own rights, you know, in a very complicated and judgmental part of society, right? Like yeah. you have um Bailey who I believe, you know, this is pointed out in the book is like a you know, a cisgender, straight, white man and kind of comes into this and gets blindsided because he doesn't expect people to be so upset because, he, you know, his argument is, <laughs> but I really believe in trans rights. Right. And like, that's important right. to me. So, like, why don't you all understand that? And people why, in the trans why would you think, be so upset that I'm right. saying that your identity is different than you right. think it is? Well, and like, so I think that's, I think, yeah, it was very, con- it was very unclear to me that he really grasped ever sort of why people were so furious. To me, yeah. to me, that's that's one of the reasons I felt like, um, you know, it was really easy. I found that throughout most of the book, I found myself sort of agreeing with Drager or like, you know, being pretty convinced by her arguments. Um, but this was the one the one part mm-hmm. where I was like, wait a second, I'm not so sure. And it made me uncomfortable. And I think part of it was that in this case, she's actually sort of um, siding against a marginalized group and right. sort of siding with, you know, Bailey as someone who is a person sort of in power and, you know, with, with a certain authority. And already, platform. And yeah. platform and all of that whereas in the other situations it's it's the opposite she's actually you know fighting for you know allowing patients to have um you know full information you know against this medical establishment that's doing things that are not scientifically based and you know the sort of the victims of the consequences of that but in this case she's sort of pushing back against an already marginalized group and that just felt icky to me right well and we're also talking about identity and the idea that identity mm-hmm. It can exist without the larger context of what's going on in the world and how people mm-hmm. are, um, you know, involved in community and and society is really complicated. And so, if you if you're telling people that their self identity is different than this sort of pathologized, medicalized version, I, I just it's hard for me to to like see. It, kind of to what you're saying, Christy, like you have the evidence, right, of the lived experience of this group of people, which I think is important. And I wasn't completely convinced that that should be thrown out of the window. I mean, the the horrible things that happen with Bailey and his family and children and stuff. I, I, you know, I really, I really get behind Dreger's big point that activists aren't always good and virtuous or even right, but that this idea that the identity of this group is not necessarily as important as some, of, as some of this other evidence, I think is really complicated. Well, and I think that there's, like, one of the problems that I had with this section was that it really, the Dreger's underlying analogy stopped working. That, like, if your analogy is Galileo, 
do trans activists really equate to like the power of the Catholic Church? Like that does Explain not. Explain that, Maggie. Well, like, like, what, what do you mean? Well, so like you know, she has this analogy of that you have these scientists that are standing up for what they, for the evidence that they are finding, and standing up against, uh, you know, ir- not necessarily irrationality, but like against lack of evidence and against these powerful institutions that are pushing an agenda, and. Mm-hmm. I disagree that you can make an analogy (laughs) between the situation that trans activists are in and the power of the Catholic Church in Galileo's time. Like, those are not analogous institutions. You know, the medical establishment and the power of the Catholic Church, sure, those might be analogous institutions, but, you know, historically oppressed people who are... angry about how you're portraying their identity do not have the same type of power that was wielded against Galileo. Well, and there was and, such right. a clear right and wrong in Galileo's case. Right, and, right. And I don't and don't believe that this is something it's where provable. there could be a, a binary mm-hmm. like that. Or or that, and also still just really bothers me that we're still trying to fit people into boxes, which seems kind of absurd, yes. especially in these circumstances. Mm-hmm. Well, it gets at, this also gets at one of the questions that we had, which is who gets to decide what the truth is, period? You know, there's there's scientific evidence, so you can look at the evidence and get there incrementally. You can get closer to what seems true scientifically. But even within the scientific community, there's disagreement. People have theories that challenge each other directly. People will agree with one part of a theory, but not another part of a theory. And I think this idea that science is is a monolith and that all the evidence comes to one endpoint is sort of also flawed. Well, I think the idea that like, uh, going back to this analogy problem again, also like the science of, you know, like the math of astronomy is a super different kind of science from studying human identity. Right. Like the evidence that goes into those are two totally different kinds of evidence. And Mm -hmm. the idea of like what a proof is, is a totally different kind of proof. And I think that this is one of those places where Dreger's arguments start to really break down because like, you know, sure, Galileo would not take someone's, you know, anecdotal evidence about what they thought was happening with the stars as evidence, and that would be legit. But your anecdotal evidence about your own identity is more than just anecdote. Maggie, that's true. But I just want to point out, like, I think that we're one of the issues here, too, is that we're looking at Galileo from our own time and context. And I Mm -hmm. think at the time, if we were living um, concurrently with Galileo, it might have felt a lot different. Because the science that he was bringing up actually was questioning people's identities at that point. And and there view of, you know, their place in the universe and how things worked and all of that. So I don't know that it's completely non-analogous, but I, I take your point still. That's such a that's such a good point, Christine. I hadn't quite thought about it that way. Um, hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's continue the conversation in a minute. But first, here is Jody with a word from this week's sponsor. Thank you, Blythe. This week's What's the Point is brought to you by Texture. When it comes to magazines, you know what you like, and with Texture, you can get all of the magazines you want in one super convenient place. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. Texture makes it easy to find articles you care about from your favorite publications. For my summer travels, I tend to load up on articles from magazines like The New Yorker or ESPN The Magazines, which I try to read every week normally. But the really cool thing about Texture is that the editorial team there starts to recommend stuff every day, often from magazines you wouldn't otherwise check out. So now I'm seeing stuff from National Geographic or Architectural Digest. 
Inside of the app, there are top stories and new and noteworthy sections updated throughout the day so you can catch up on the latest articles. Right now, Texture is offering What's the Point listeners a free trial when you go to texture.com slash point. You'll gain immediate access to all of the top magazines, including back issues and bonus video content. Start binge reading for free right now when you go to texture.com slash point. Again, that's texture.com slash point. All right, back to the show. Uh, so one of the questions we talked, we wrestled with is that idea of, you know, do scientists who are looking at people and asking questions about that are related to, to society and to psychology and, and all these other things um, that are dealing directly with people versus the physical sciences, you know, um, do they have a different ethical obligation than the people who you know, than, the, than the, their counterparts? Do the people who are looking at people pe- at people science have a different obligation than people who are looking at environmental and world science and physics? Right. And to my earlier criticism, like, it's important in science to, to do categorization. Like, I, you know what I mean? I understand, I understand why it's it helpful to put people in boxes. I think part of the problem here, though, is that this was a book that was written kind of for popular consumption to challenge... You're talking about Bailey's book? Yeah, Bailey book, Bailey's book, excuse me. Um, about transgender. Yeah, Bailey's oh. book about about transgender women was written to be for a general audience and is sort of taking this science as as true. And, and he understands it to be true and established, but I, I don't think it is established in the, all of the science world. And, the, and that's part of the complicated thing, right? Like it's, is there, is there a different ethical obligation when you're communicating to another community of scientists versus when you're communicating to the general public? And I think that's part of Dreger's argument is that, um, y- you know, these things, uh, these like, sort of fights go on within the scientific community they get very ugly but then when they get translated to the general public people don't have all of the information and aren't necessarily willing to look at it and so they think they understand something that they don't so that's because people who are consuming a popular science book much like the one we have just consumed only have what is present in the book to guide them in many cases they don't always have all the back information because they're typically i mean even if they are a scientist in one field that doesn't mean obviously that they have all the information they need to understand science of other fields yeah spring well i was gonna say like so this brings up something anna was talking about that i think we really should get into is like is the galilean personality good (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for science for like right. like does that produce good science right <laughs> yeah right well so you have this first story right where it's talking about the intersex and sort of the the heart of that is that the intersex had not been had a voice in the sort of medical treatment and so we were missing this whole body of evidence about the harm that was being done through these surgeries but then in the second section you have this you have this really complicated issue with transgender. And like you're saying, Christy, it was really hard for me not to hear more from the transgender community outside of just a couple of activists who really went after Bailey and were, you know, behaved like behaved. I mean, did horrible, horrible things. Right. And so there's obviously a whole group of people there in the middle. And I, it was really hard not to hear from them because she had just primed me for the fact, and I'm you know, a strong believer of this, that the group in question has evidence that is incredibly important and they're the only ones who can provide it. So the Galilean personality, just as, as a reminder, is this sort of this very em- empirically focused 
mindset that says, you know, what does the evidence say? What, I, what can I prove with the scientific evidence? And it also tends to have hallmarks of stubbornness and insistence upon you know, pushing back very hard against people who are coming to you with evidence that you don't think is any good. Yeah, and I would argue that it is good for science. It's good. And I think, you know, it, it can be problematic. It can create a lot of conflict. But I think and I think that Dreger, this is kind of Dreger's argument as well, is that it's helpful, though, for moving science forward. And to like you almost like if you have a situation where people are like disregarding the evidence or overlooking it or blind to it, like you almost need some rabble rouser to go in there and say like, this is the evidence and I'm insistent and I won't let you look away. And so it can create a lot of conflict and it may be very unpleasant for individuals and people involved in the controversies. But if you're just looking, if you're, if you're taking sort of a historic view and looking at it, you know, with several steps back, I think it is helpful for science as a pursuit. Well, it reminded me of a lot of stories where um, that have been in the news where somebody, some sort of a whistleblower came in with evidence and forced everyone's hand in terms of things that really mattered. You know, Anna, you did some writing about Flint. So it kind of reminds me of that situation where there was a lot of um, about the Flint water crisis, where there was a lot of evidence that was being was not being collected properly. And maybe you can speak to some of that. Right. I thought about Flint a lot when I was reading this book. So in Flint, there was a problem with lead in the water as the result of a change in the water source. The thing there was that the community had been saying for a really long time that there were problems with the water. I mean, they were experiencing all sorts of sensory problems. Lead is an insidious, uh, you know, silent menace, right? So you can't, they didn't, they couldn't know that there was lead in the water, but they knew there were problems with the water. And all of their evidence, right, as a group who was, ex- who was drinking this water was being ignored. And it turned out that they were right and there were all sorts of problems. That is sort of an easy concept to grasp when you have a group, a community that's been marginalized for a long time and a power structure that has, you know, undoubtedly not done right by them. It's very easy to be like, yep, see, these people knew all along and they, we should have listened to them. And and that, in fact, that's true. And that was what was sort of complicated with this book is that on one hand, um, you see that time and time again, where we really need to, you know, listen to people. And I think it is really important that people ask these controversial questions and I what I get to what it got to in the book is like when you're dealing with humans, what is the ethical obligation for scientists in terms of how they um, right how they talk with those people, how they treat those those people's narratives and life experiences? Yeah, right. You know, is that evidence? You have a you have a different obligation to a human research subject than you have to. A star. Right. So into, right. exactly. And so to, <laughs> right. to Christy's point, like we actually do need people to ask these questions, even if they are challenging. And when it's about humans, it's always going to be challenging. In Flint, it was so important that they listen to the community. And that turned out to be where the evidence is. But the sort of bigger questions that go on in this book where you're talking about identity don't really apply because there there is like a there's a scientific test. You can look at the water, you can see that there's lead, right? And we know that lead is dangerous after years and years of um, research looking at exposure. Here, it's Mm -hmm. much more like fledgling field. We don't have clear black and white answers. We're probably never going to. Um, and, And yet, it's this, you know, the scientists are sort of are writing and acting in a vacuum without really taking into account what the larger implications are necessarily for people in the world sometimes. Right. So I also think that an important issue here is that studying people is really hard and like, like physics is relatively easy by comparison. Um, <laughs> and so, but, and it, 
think that it's important to sort of differentiate between questions that can be answered scientifically and ones yeah. that can't. And at some point in most of these things, it does come down to value judgments. So you have the evidence, but we have to make judgments about them and we have to like decide on cutoffs or thresholds or just ideas of definitions and measurement things and things like that. And so, you know, I think that it's wrong to just think that science can answer every single question. And that's maybe where you know she butts into trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I also think that like, well, it can also be hard for activists to trust yeah. that science and for very legitimate Absolutely. reasons. I mean, like it, science, you know, science produces data, but the assumptions that underlie how that data was collected can totally skew whether or not that data is accurate. And that's like something that we have a long history of with like humans. Research. Right. And that's where like the Flint perspective maybe is actually it creates kind of an interesting parallel because they were collecting data, but they were doing it in a way that made it so that it was skewed. Right. And right. so and of course, the community didn't trust didn't and doesn't trust the, the powers that be that were doing that testing. Um, and and, a, you know, a little bit you have this problem where not understanding the science within the larger world context. I mean, we've said this already, but it it really comes back to being really needing to recognize what what the science means. It's like the data doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum, right? It just doesn't exist without right. the larger social context. And the people and people collect it in mo- almost all many cases, at least, you know, so you right. do have opportunities not only for error, but for bias that is a result of, mis- of assumptions like Maggie was talking about. Well, I was just saying, I think that she maybe missed an opportunity to talk about like what Bailey could have done differently to in order to do his research and talk about his research and still be sympathetic to the trans people whose identities he was talking about. I totally agree, Maggie. And I, the thing that I was really wishing for in the book that was absent was sort of lessons learned from here and not lessons like the lessons she seems to take are like, wow, people are really irrational about this stuff. Right. But what I wanted to know is like, okay, so given that this is, we know now, like we have multiple examples that this is how people respond when, when, you know, faced with evidence they don't like. So given that that's human nature, like how, what do we do then? Like, what's the way forward? And that's, that's what I was really looking for that I didn't find in the book. So I think yeah. those are some great key takeaways for sure. And I'd like to um, give everybody a last round to offer up any other key takeaways they have. Anna or Maggie or Christy, you have any final thoughts? I think, I mean, I just think it's a book that's really worth reading. It, I found myself nodding vigorously and yelling at it frequently. And so... Mark I, you of know, a good it, book. <laughs> exactly. It, it really got me thinking. I really disagreed with her in some things and I really agreed with her in others. It just, um, which, you know, seems like the best thing you could get out of a book about Right. Science. So you'd recommend it? Okay. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, I'll just echo what Anna said. You know, I think even if it's something that you end up disagreeing with, it's very thought provoking. And I, I have already recommended it to multiple people. I I think it was really interesting to read. And I thought it was like everybody else said a book that was thought provoking. I feel like I maybe disagreed with it more often than other folks did. Um, But I also it also got me thinking about like why I disagreed with it and made me think a little bit more about like whether I was right or not. And that was (laughs) good. Well, great. Well, I mean, as long as you know, it has us thinking, as we said earlier, we're calling this podcast sparks. Part of that is because these are ideas that spark conversation. So I feel like Galileo's Middle Finger by Alice Dreger definitely falls into that category. All right. So thanks very much to Maggie Kroth Baker. Thank you. And Christy Ashwanden. Great to be here. And Anna Maria Berry Jester. Thanks, Blythe. That's all we've got for episode one of Sparks. 
As I said, we talked about Alice Dreger's 2015 book, Galileo's Middle Finger. And Christy will be talking to Dreger in a separate podcast, so stay tuned for that. Thanks very much to our producers, Chadwick Matlin, Lucina Malesio, and Jody Abergon. Tony Chow is in the control room. Thanks to Jorge Estrada and Rick Pluta for help with this episode. So we'll be doing this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed. You should subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and help us spread the word. And let us know what you think about our first edition. You can email podcasts at 538.com with any comments or any suggestions. We're definitely looking for new ideas about books or other writing to discuss, so send them our way. I'm Blythe Terrell here at 538. Thanks for hanging out with us as we talk about the science writing that sparks our interest.